Brucey, Gronk, and the Librarian. So close your eyes, for this is scary. You are here with Loop and Larry. Perhaps their 50th, I heard them say, will celebrate the show that made them this way. For if they talk about Monster Mania, we'll all return to Transylvania. It's 50 years of Frights Divine, with Mitch Markowitz and Count Frightenstein. <laughs> In a world filled with intergalactic space battles, meta-human destruction on a global scale, and psychopathic serial hauntings, there's only one team who can make sense of it all. When your world is overrun with rampant pop culture, call Luminary Guardians of Geek. Times. 50, 50 times we've had an explosion <laughs> i love it i absolutely yeah, love it <laughs> everybody i'm loop and i'm larry and this is guardians of geek our 50th episode we are so like excited to have done 50 episodes it's like one of those things you do 50 then you do 100 and then yeah. who knows how, how many episodes we're gonna end up doing we except in our case it was it was we did one and then maybe we'll do two and <laughs> hey we did three good for us <laughs> when we started this we basically started because we talk about geek stuff all the time anyways and we thought yeah. and we're both in media and we thought this would be kind of cool to do a to do a show we both bring different things to the table that we can do and it was awesome to, to be able to do this and i was like i can't believe we made the 50 episodes that is crazy but so we had to celebrate we had to do something big for the 50th oh so yeah just, like why, why wouldn't you like so yeah. we did reach out we were trying to we thought what can we do for this and, and what's something you know something from our favorite show or somebody we wanted a guest for yeah. a 50th just someone to make it a little bit more special and i think we found the person and based on a, a show that we loved hilarious Absolutely. house of frightenstein that literally also just turned 50 yeah so it was perfect it was a perfect match like it was yeah. a match made in heaven we both yeah. got our frightenstein shirts on oh yeah we are representing we are the frightensteins <laughs> you've got like you've you've stolen merchandise from the set <laughs> behind you <laughs> got every, I, you know I, I just cleaned the closets out and hung it all up <laughs> <laughs> so i can't wait any longer larry why don't you why don't you introduce our special guest well this man needs very little introduction if you were a child of the 70s or 80s like we were <laughs> Your impressionable mind was most likely altered forever by one of the greatest and most unique kids shows ever created, the hilarious House of Frightenstein. This man was one of the creative geniuses behind it. You know him as Super Hippie and the Mosquito, co-producer <laughs> extraordinaire, Mitch Markowitz. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Oh yeah. To your, uh into your 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 digs i'm, I'm, I'm so happy i'm a i'm so happy i'm a fan of your show and uh i listen to it all the time and watch it on youtube and uh i'm just so happy to have been invited 
Well, thank you, Mitch. This is, I, I got to tell you, Loop and I have been fans of the show literally since we were kids of the 70s. We were both born in, like, I was born in 70. I think Loop was born in 71. Yeah. Were you born in 71? Yeah. So 71, yeah. We're, we're the same age as the show. And I, <laughs> like, we've grown up with it. And it's always been a part of our lives. So to be able to talk to you and sort of be virtually with you in your home is, this is a huge moment for yeah, us. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you guys decided to join me. But before we go any further, what kind of Michigan a name is Loop? Where did that come from? <laughs> what well, my name? Yeah. <laughs> this is my last name. I don't know. A lot of loops in Leamington. That's all I know. <laughs> is it really your your last yep. name? Yeah. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you do. know, I was in the music business way back when, in the mid '60s. And the band, a couple of the bands that I managed played in Leamington a bunch of times. Leamington is sort of tobacco country, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, I, I remember it. And full of loops. Yeah, I know. I don't know. That's the only place I know where there's loops is in, is in Leamington. That's where my dad's from, Kingsville, Leamington area. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, there was, a, there was a place, I forget which town it was. Was it Leamington? No, what's another real big popular place for, for tobacco in that area? Til, uh, um, Tilsonburg? Isn't that? No, Delhi. 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 Yeah. Yeah. We played there a couple of times. And it was, um, I forget whether, uh, maybe it was a high school or a Catholic youth organization or something. And they have a weird thing they did there. Maybe you're, you're part of it. I don't know. But the band's playing on the stage. And there's a large group of, of kids dancing in the middle of the floor, probably in a school auditorium or something. And the kids that weren't dancing walked around in a circle all around the kids in the middle that were dancing all night. They didn't stop walking around in circles. And the band and I kept looking over at each other like, what the fuck is this? We'd never seen, you know, we played every school and every bar in, in Ontario and outside of Ontario. Never saw that before. It was just a kind of a weird scenario. But sounds anyway. like something out of Wicker Man. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, it's true. Like, it's true. Folk horror. Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to digress from your 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 focus, That's which right. is the hilarious House of Frankenstein. Yes. Well, you just celebrated fifty years. Yeah. Fifty yeah. years that this show has been part of the popular culture. That's remarkable. So yeah, what's my, even more remarkable is that I co-produced the show and I was only two years old. Like I'm only now. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. So, so we're wondering though, because you created this thing, there had to have been something in your in your youth that you grew up with that inspired you to do this. Like what what movies slash TV shows were you watching as a as a kid that you know formed your <laughs> view on life? <laughs> Oh boy, that's easy. Uh, my brother is seven years older. He was seven years older than me. Actually, he still is. Yeah. And um, that's why whenever there was a dirty task to do, we'd pull straws and I always lost because I was seven years younger. <laughs> um, we grew up watching all those old universal films like Frankenstein and The Mummy and, and uh, The Werewolf and like everybody in our age group grew up watching that. And ergo, the, 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 some of the characters in our show, like the Count, you know, ours was a spoof of that, obviously, but um, spoof or not, we had a Count, we had a werewolf, we had, um, well, we didn't have a mummy, but we had a Frankenstein. We pretty well covered it all. 
Yeah. And then after we had you know, sort of written a little bit of the show, so I want to call that writing, there wasn't much to it. But uh, that's another funny story, actually. You might want to ask them about writers, writing and writers. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we knew when it came to editing, we, by the way, revolutionized the, the way shows like this were recorded, which was back then it was videotaped as opposed to now where it's all digital. But back then, if you wanted to do an hour show, which is what Frankenstein is, or, well, no, it still is, um, you would record the show in order. So you'd start at the beginning and you tape it all the way through. And that taping, depending on your budget, could last anywhere from a week to three or four weeks to tape a one hour show. And we knew based on the budget we had and the amount of time we'd given ourselves, like we said, we'll deliver this to you, to CHCHTV in Hamilton, which is where we originally sold the show. We'll deliver it in nine months. And that was like an, an incredible feat. And I'm, no one could have even dreamt that they would be able to produce 130 hour long episodes and edit it and deliver it inside nine months. It was a three year job. So um, anyway, we figured out that the best way to do this was eliminate all the makeup and all the, the wardrobe changes and all the striking the set and putting up new sets in it was just to do it in a modular fashion. So we'd go in, for example, at six in the morning and Billy, which, depending on which character he was playing, that day, Billy Band, who was unquestionably the star of the show, yeah. and the single most talented man I'd ever met or worked with, Billy would go in for makeup at six in the morning. That would usually take a couple of hours, two to three hours, depending on the character. Then we'd get to the floor probably by nine and start shooting. And let's say that day we were going to do librarian uh, character episodes, so or segments. So that day we would just keep banging out one segment after another, after another, after another, all day long. And we figured we'd end up maybe at five or five thirty, maybe push it a little bit till six o'clock, because if I remember correctly, the crew at CHCH at that time was not union, so it wasn't like the union called for a break every twelve minutes and. You know, you got to have coffee and you got to go to the bathroom and all those other things. We just kept on ramming it out. And, uh, and then it'd get to be like 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And we said, all right, let's wrap it up. And I spent most of my time when I was there on the floor on, in the studio. And my brother spent most of his time in the control room. And they didn't have a real fancy control room back then at CHCH. So he was all set up in a bus in the parking lot. And um, he'd get on the PA at like, I guess, at 5 36 o'clock and say, okay, guys, time to wrap it up for the day. And Billy would say, no, man, I can do, let's, let's do another one. I can do it. Let me do it. Please, let's do another one. And after he begged for five minutes, we said, all right, didn't have to twist our arms that hard because the more we got into one day, the less we'd have to do the next time we did librarians. Yeah. So we do another one. And then he just keep doing that. No, man, I got, I got more in me. Let's do another by the time we ended up striking that set, it was sometimes somewhere between 10 and 11.30 at night from six in the morning. Oh, like wow. That was, a ball, that was a ball buster. And then the next day we do the same thing, but we do Griselda's and the next day we do Pet Pets and the next day go on a Clyde. And then when we finished all the shooting, we took our executive assistant, Nancy Pruss, 
locked her in a editing room. And if you guys have been in editing rooms, I'm sure you yeah. have. We we both worked in TV. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they're about the the editing room is maybe twice the size of my small studio here in my house, and it's got you know 14 monitors up on the wall, and no windows and no clock, and we gave her everything we'd shot, and she had to patch that all together you know, putting a, a librarian, a Griselda, this or that. And when she finished it all, which took a lot of time in that dark room with just her and an editor and no windows and no clock, I, I sincerely believe that when she moved to California after that, she committed herself to an asylum. I mean, that's enough to make anybody crazy. I mean, absolutely friggin' crazy. So now we realized when we were shooting that actually before we even started shooting, that there were going to be holes that we had to fill. There'd be a minute here, a half minute there, a minute there. And my brother and I both grew up watching Superman on television, and we loved it. And um, we thought, he thought, actually, I wouldn't ridicule myself, but he thought, listen, you're a skinny little Jewish guy. And uh, maybe we get you a skin tight Superman costume and put a big blonde crazy Afro wig and sideburns on you. And through the miracle of modern technology, back then modern technology was called chroma key and now of course yeah. it's CGI. And um, we'll put you out flying upside down in the air and sitting on high tension lines and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with one liners. And we did it. And of course, 50 years later, it's history. It's part of history that we did, I think, 42 different super hippie segments with me doing all those crazy things, flying upside down. Oh, by the way, I was supposed to pretend I was stoned through this whole thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, was, it, it was 1971, and I was a hippie. Yeah. So um, I, I pretended I was stoned during the day. Right. <laughs> At night, didn't have to pretend quite as much. <laughs> So, um, so were the, the, those... where I was going, where I was those... going with this thought is there was a magazine back there. They may still even be in, in print, in print, called Broadcaster Magazine. It was for people in the trade, and um, they did a full-page story on us. And the story was all about how we had had really come up with something new, a whole new way to shoot sitcoms, if you will, uh, or comedy shows or comedy sitcoms with this modular system. And it, it took literally a three, three and a half year shoot time down, reduced that down to nine months. So it was like a miracle. And, and I'm, I'm after that, I mean, we set a precedent for the industry and lots of people started doing it that way, shooting modular stuff. Um, did um, did you ever did you ever consider contacting Gu the Guinness Book of World Records people? Because that I just <laughs> I can't I can't even fathom the amount of production that was done in that short a period of time. Like that's because we both worked in TV. We it's that's it's just unheard of. <laughs> you don't look Jewish. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> somebody somebody should have submitted that to the Guinness World the, the Book of World World, of world Records. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a great idea. Maybe you want to take that task. I I would look into it. <laughs> I'm sure you are the first. <laughs> I'd go along with it, and I'll when I get a minute, I'll email you a copy of that broadcaster magazine story. Yeah. It's so you can I mean, use that as evidence when you go and plead your case. Yeah, it's <laughs> I think I think they'll look at you like you were friggin' crazy, man. After 50 years, you want us to put this in the book. Of <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, never too, it's never too I, late. I watch it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, you watch the show. It, there was no way to sort of grunge or gorge or whatever you call it in those days. You know, you only could watch one episode at a time. But these days, that streaming, as, as you guys know, we're now streaming on, on Crave TV all across Canada. Yeah. We're streaming on Tubi and, and Plex and Amazon Prime in the U.S. So if you were crazy enough, you could watch all 130 episodes one after another, after another, after another. And then after you got out of the asylum, <laughs> you could you could maybe get in touch. You could maybe get in touch with with uh, the book of records and it would be more timely. But yes. feel free. <laughs> I, I have to say I my, my record is five. I've binged five five episodes back to back. I did that. More power to you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about characters. So I'm, I'm in a, a local sketch comedy troupe. So one of the things that got me into sketch comedy was, of course, SCTV. But the other thing was your show because it was just it was a sketch mentality, right? The way you guys did these little sketches all back to back. And uh, my question is, is like, did how many of those characters did you know? Okay, going into this, we're going to do this character, this character, this character. And how many did you did you develop as it was going on? later on throughout the show? Good question. I'll answer your question, but let me tell you that some of the people involved in SCTV were absolutely watching Frankenstein. Yep. Like, there's, there's not much question about Eugene Levy and, and John Candy. I mean, all, a lot of the people back then were on top of the show and, and implemented some of the stuff that we, that we had done, and, and that's great. I mean, and Count Floyd, that's uh, um, Count Floyd on SCTV was probably like off of your show, basically. Yeah. Uh, can I say fucking A? And if not, maybe you can edit it out. You can do whatever you want. We don't care. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. For sure. That's the case. And it's a good question. And, and um, we, we didn't start the production with all the characters, it did evolve. I mean, we had, obviously we had the Count in New York. We had the Wolfman down. We knew that we were gonna do that. And we knew we were gonna do a witch. So, um, which is another funny story, by the way, I'll tell you about Griselda if you're interested at one point or another. Um, and then from there, we sort of started to Ad-lib a little bit. We, we, we thought, you know, the, the key, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but back then it was very serious. It still is. Uh, actually, I'm sure it got more serious now that the government body, the CRTC here in Canada, said there was a, there was a, a minimum amount of educational content that you had to include in a children's TV show. So we were doing anything we could to get educational content in there. And all of it passed back then for some strange, I, I mean, the whole show did, but all the stuff that we planned to be educational, they accepted as such. For example, the library was all about reading and, and that was an easy one. Griselda was all about learning how to cook and <laughs> I'll, albeit most people don't use bat's eyes and- uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, por por porcupine guts, but <laughs> none nonetheless, it, it got passed. And obviously, Boana Clyde teaching you all about animals and then um, shooting with a camera only. Yeah. Dr. Pet Vet, big time. They love, CRTC loved Dr. Pet Vet and learning oh, yeah. about a different pet every day. So um, it, it kept evolve going down that road, that educational content road. 
So I guess probably half and half. We went into it with half and the rest evolved, but it evolved very quickly because like I said, we would shoot all day uh, uh, counting Igor segments, the next day, the next day, the next day. So within a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, we were ready for to roll out new characters. And it wasn't hard, like I was talking to one of the cameramen the other day, and um, and he was saying, he was one of the guys who was asked to take out a knife from the kitchen. They had a little cast and crew kitchen there, grab some of the biggest knives they could get, and go outside and cut down some branches and leaves for the um, the Boana Clyde segment. Yeah, And for some of the larger stuff, we, we, we drove around the block a few times so we could find some broken boughs that were sitting on the ground they were already i mean we didn't want to break the tree down but so that that evolved at the last minute it was easy to go out and get them a pit helmet and a, a plastic set of binoculars and a little plastic camera so the answer to your question is some of it was was evolved some of it we went into it, the, the premise with it so you were mentioning the education side of it. Uh, so if if all of the other, like the Bawana Clydes and the and the Griseldas, if they all pass CRTC, how did Julius Sumner Miller appear in the show? How did how did oh, that yeah. decision? How was that decision made? Boy, you're loaded with good questions, man. That, that's a, that's another good one. That's a gem. My brother and I were big, and this is a very funny story because it's two sided. We were big fans of the late night TV shows. Like I was, although I was very young at the time, I grew up watching Steve Allen, who was the first host of The Tonight Show. And then that rolled into Jack Parr, and I watched that show every night. And I, I don't know how old I was, but I must have been I know, 10 or 12. I mean, I certainly shouldn't have been up at 11.30 at night watching Steve Allen or Jack Parr. But, um, and then followed Jack Parr was Johnny Carson, of course. And, Johnny was a big fan of the professors and he would have had him on as a regular guest, not, uh, you know, exactly every six months, but every four or five months or whatever, he'd have him come in and guest. And he loved the experiments. He would walk over like he used to do on the show, walk over to the set and stand there and be amazed as the professor would do this or that and right. make all kinds of, he, he was awestruck by the professor and his knowledge and the fact that he was a little bit crazy. I mean, we all know that. And, and that brought a lot of interesting cachet to the Carson show because Carson was a very conservative kind of guy. The show was very structured, except when you get kooks on like the professor or like, uh, I forget his name, the guy who brought the animals and didn't really know much about animals. He stuttered a lot. Yeah. Um, but so we got him by watching Carson and we thought, why not give it a shot? So we reached out to him and he said yes. Oh wow! Like Vincent Price, said, just like Vincent Price said yes. So funny wait, story. Wait. Funny story about him. Let me just finish this thought yeah. because it's a funny story. We flew him in from Boston. I think yeah, he was in. He lives in Boston. Lived in Boston. And we went out to pick him up at the airport, which was back then called Malton Airport. Then it evolved into being the um, uh, Toronto International Airport, and. Um, we went out in a limousine, my brother and I, to pick him up, and we had a station wagon follow us for his equipment. So we got off the plane and we greeted him and blah, 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 and uh, everything was very nice. And we said, okay, Professor, nice, <laughs> excuse me, nice to meet you. This is our car over here. You're going to drive into the station with us, and the station wagon over there is going to take your equipment. And he just gave us one of those wrong, 
the professor goes with his equipment. And I looked at him like he's crazy. I mean, this is a beautiful Cadillac limousine, all shiny and black and everything. And the, the, the station wagon driver knew exactly what he was there for. He was kind of lucky about it, loading him in the back of the wagon. And then, by the way, if your viewers aren't old enough to know what a station wagon is, it's an elongated vehicle <laughs> with space in the back that, that's about the same height as a car. It's not like an SUV or a crossover or anything. Um, so anyway, he said, no, he wouldn't do it. He refused. We, what are we going to do? Chris's army was a crazy old man. And if that's the way you want to do it. That's the way you can do it. So we left. And the driver loaded the stuff into the, uh, into the station wagon. And the uh, professor got in the station wagon. <laughs> and that's where it started to go bad. Because what ended up happening is the driver wasn't our driver. We had just hired him for this gig. It was a, what they call today, a side gig. It was a guy with a station wagon. Right. And he somehow got his instructions mixed up. And he ended up taking the professor and all the equipment to London, Ontario. Oh. Yeah. That's what we said. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so anyway, he called the station and we got it. He called us on a landline. No such thing as a, as a, as a uh, cell phone back then, of course. Right. So we got it all straightened out and um, we got back in the car and the professor got back in the station wagon and he ended up having twice the trip, obviously. He went from Toronto, basically, to London and then from London back to Hamilton. <laughs> so we got to see part of the countryside <laughs> and we just sat in Hamilton waiting, twiddling our fingers and uh, the rest is history. He was a terrific guest on our show and he was 101% educational content. Yeah. yeah, and and a lot of kids loved him, and it was amazing how many kids were inspired by him. A, a, a guy now, for example, who's a, a friend of mine, is a meteorologist at the Weather Bureau, and um, he said he told us, he told me anyway, that he watched it as a kid, and that was his inspiration to go that direct, go into that direction of science and. Meteorology, meteorology and all those other good things and now i think he's the head meteorologist his name is scott sutherland and um so that's a, that's a good story it is so did you yeah, do all of people his, who were inspired by him did Sorry? you do all of his segments did you do all of the professor's segments at the same time like the same way so one experiment oh, I, after another no absolutely because he was from out of town and yeah no and he had other things to do we had go back and rest he was old at the time and, uh, <laughs> and like i said he was old and crazy and the best part about him no makeup no nothing he just then that that crazy hair out like this that was him didn't have to oh. touch him that's wild yeah. he was perfect for the show he was just yeah perfect. sorry i don't i don't want to keep harping on the professor but the one thing <laughs> one thing i always found really fun funny about the professor segments is that very often they'd be cut off mid <laughs> mid experiment like the way the show was edited, he'd be in the middle of an experiment and then all of a sudden it would cut to Griselda or somebody else. And I always thought that that was an interesting way to do it. It just, it, for, for a little kid, it kept it interesting somehow. <laughs> I thought that well, you, can thank, you can thank Nancy Press for that. Because yeah. <laughs> like I said, she was locked in that room about probably about, I don't know, 15 feet square with 20 monitors. And, and she was tasked to patch them all together, make a, make a quilt, make 130, 47 minute, 40, 
sorry, 43 minutes, uh, no, 53 minutes, sorry, of content. Yeah. And she just cut them in wherever she saw fit. And she did that with, you know, those black and white stills we would show of monster pictures. Yes. Yeah. Same thing. She would just stop it, throw it in for 10 seconds, come back out. That's where she slugged in the, uh, the super hippie uh, uh, segments. Uh, she just bing, 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 bing. And the, the, the license we gave her was just you can't do anything that's too crazy. Yeah. I don't mean we limited it to that. I mean, nothing is too crazy for this, yeah. for this show. <laughs> that's the direction we're going in because every other kids show in the market and outside of the market was very scripted like the reason chch said yes they already had two kids shows they had a show called captain andy who was an older gentleman he did the camera in a in a, a viticon booth with one camera and he just sat in the chair and read some stories and talked a little bit but i mean not the most exciting TV show in the world Especially when you're three years old, you, 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 can, you can dig a little action, you know? Yeah. And then the other show they did was Tiny Calentine. And that oh, right. show, although it looked, it looked like it was made for kids, the truth is it was made for parents. Oh, isn't that kid cute? Isn't that sweet? And, you know? Yeah. So yeah. when we pitched them on Frankenstein, we said, this is going to be a wild and crazy ride. And I guarantee you're going to love it. And we already had a history there. My brother had already produced a number of series for CHCH, so it was uh, it was not a hard sell. Um, all we needed was one thing to close the deal, and I'm sure you've heard this story before. But we went in first to pitch the general manager, a chap named Sid Bibby, and he sort of ran that station with an iron fist. And um, we pitched the fact that we had a, a concept for a new kid show. It was going to be a pseudo horror kids TV show, and. Um, it's going to be wild and crazy and we're going to do terrific sets and all that other good stuff. And we ended the conversation with Sid saying he was real, real down to earth, sort of straight kind of guy. And he said, all right, let me think about it, guys. And when we left and got back in the car to head back towards Toronto, we knew right there. And then we hadn't closed the deal. You know, I mean, they, yeah. when he said, we're going to think about it, never a good sign. So we were talking back and forth. What can we do to close the deal? And uh, my brother said, well, maybe if we could put a big star in front of him and, and that would make a, a, a decision breaker. And um, so we went back in, got another appointment a couple of days later, went back in, pitched it on the fact that we would get him a big international Hollywood star to be the, the, uh, the host, do the intros and the extras and the interlocutor who would introduce all the individual segments. And again, no nonsense, Sid Bibby said, like who? You know, like not, yeah, sure. Just you'll, you'll tell me after you start producing and I cut a check for you. He wanted to know who we had in mind. Okay. I'm, I'm, sure you guys, I'm sure you guys have done one of these before, but my brother, we're, we're sitting, the three of us sitting in his office and he looks up like this. Like, you know, you, like an answer is going to come to you from the sky. <laughs> and, and he reached up like this, I mean, not literally, and pulled down and said, like Vincent Price. <laughs> and Sid reacted exactly the way you did just there <laughs> and said, listen, if you could get Vincent Price, the most famous movie star in the world when it comes to this horror genre, and he was charming and he, and he could spoke, speak English perfectly, Unlike some of the other people, like Bela Lugosi and, and uh, Boris Karloff, and they just didn't have the charm. 
and right. cachet that he did, that he did. And uh, he said, if you could get him to come and do a kid's show in our shitty little TV station in Hamilton, <laughs> I'd sign right here, right now for 130 hour long episodes. And um, we said, okay, we can. <laughs> and he, we, my brother just happened to have a contract in his back pocket, took it out, gave Sid a pen, he signed it, and the deal was done. It was approved. And, and, then, and then the I, panic I think, set in. <laughs> I, I think I sense someone who's going to walk by us in front of the camera. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hey! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a cameo. There it is. <laughs> and since we didn't mention her name or anything, you don't have to pay her. Hey, there you go. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You're not paying me either. Are you? Oh right. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. <laughs> anyway, how was that Vincent was, Price? That was how the deal was done. <laughs> how, how did you get Vincent Price? Because at this point, you must have been like, oh, my God, are we going to get this guy? Like, we don't know anything about him. We're how to get in contact with him. How did, how did that all come about? Oh, now, that's a good question. You must be Matt. I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it goes back to, you know, when we, we figured we would have holes in the show. So a friend of ours, actually, you may remember him. A friend of ours, just was in the process or had just finished producing an animated series that ended up being a pretty big hit actually in Canada. And uh, the show was called Rocket Robin Hood. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. That often played produced... before your show or after it. That's right. Yeah. And he was a good friend of ours. His name was Al Getz. And he ended up being the biggest animation firm in the country, which didn't take much back then. It wasn't a very big country when it came to television. But um, he, we were talking to him and then we told him that what we, you know, what we were doing and blah, blah, blah. And he did some of the graphics for us, you know, the cards where you, it would say the, the librarian and then it would cut to the segment. Yeah. He would do some of that artwork for us. Anyway, uh, he said, listen, if you need them, I know Forey Ackerman, Forrest Ackerman, who owned uh, Monster Magazine. And um, it was like the biggest magazine for horror in the world. And I'll introduce you. He might be of some use to you. So he did introduce us. And we, we met with Corey and he owned the rights to all the black and white stills that we used when we slugged them in for five seconds or whatever. Yeah. So we licensed them from him and we told him our dilemma that we were, we were trying to figure out how to reach Vincent because we'd already committed ourselves saying we can get him. And he said, no problem. I know Vincent and I'll introduce you. So he did, we met him. And uh, we made it very easy for him. We gave him, I think it was like three or four good reasons he should do this. He should take our offer. First of all, it was a kid's show and he'd never done one before. Yeah. Second of all, we said, we'll be very accommodating, Mr. Price. We know you're a busy guy and you're always shooting a movie or this or that or whatever. So we'll get you in and out of town in, in two days. We'll shoot all your segments in two days. And those can be any two days you want. So for example, if you have a gig on a movie set Monday through Friday, we'll fly in, we'll work with you Saturday and Sunday, and get you back Monday morning for your, for your, for your gig and wherever you're, you're doing the film. That was a big plus. So it wasn't gonna cost you any time. We offered to pay him and that never hurts. 
Now, it wasn't a lot of dough. I, I think, I forget what we would pay them, either 10 or $13,000, I forget which. But that was 1970 when we talked to them, yeah. and late 70. And that's not bad if it's just side money. Like he's already getting paid for whatever he's doing during the week. We were going to pay all his expenses, obviously. And we're going to get him in and out of town in two days. That wasn't, that wasn't bad. Yeah. What clinched the deal was we said, listen, this is going to be a very small show. And it's going to play in a very, very small market for a station that's very small and has no audience. So regardless of how bad the show is, how bad the writing is, how bad the camera work is, the direction is, and, and how crappy the environment is, it's not going to have an, uh, an ill effect on your reputation, which is stellar, because nobody's ever going to see the show. <laughs> Little did we know that this thing was going to run for 50 years, and I'm, I'm convinced, guys, it's got another 50 years in it. Oh, yeah. The, show's got, the show attained iconic status long ago, like, like Rocky Horror Show, and neither yeah. Rocky Horror nor us ever dreamt that that would happen. Like, we thought it would run for a year and then die and go to television heaven. Yep. But obviously, yep. that's not the way it worked out. It got syndicated across Canada. Then it got syndicated in most major markets in the U.S. Funny, you know, I was um, I appear at a lot of comic cons and live festivals. By the way, if anybody's ever looking for me, I'm sure you'll post my my Twitter address, yep. and um, they're welcome to get in touch with me because I love to go out and meet fans, chat with them, take selfies with them, and all that kind of stuff. So I was doing a show once, and I forget where it was. But a guy came up to me and rolled up his short sleeve and showed me he had a tattoo of Eeyore on his arm. And I said, oh, man, that's fabulous. Where'd you watch our show? I, watch, I ask everybody where they watched it, just so I'll know what market they were in. And I can usually find out when they tell me, you know, I watched it at 6 in the morning, I watched it at 4 in the afternoon, I, I know where, when we aired in different markets. Yeah. And uh, he said, as a matter of fact, I saw it as recently as a couple of years ago in Norway. And I didn't even re realize we ran in Norway. <laughs> wow. Then I was at Fan Expo, and uh, I had this charming young lady come up to me and said, oh, I grew up watching your show as a matter of fact, I watched it with my parents. And great, where did you watch? What market were you in? And she said, as a matter of fact, I watched it in Madrid, in Spain. <laughs> and again, I didn't know we aired in Spain. <laughs> so, um, so those were some, some syndication fees that we didn't collect, I don't think. <laughs> uh, but so, anyway Vincent Price said yes and, and uh, that's the key to how we got him now it didn't end up being two days it didn't, didn't exactly work out there where they, where they were supposed to but he liked the offer we made him and, and, and Vincent Price said yes uh, he, he looks like he's having the time of his life like if you look at his he thing did. it just looks like he's having fun he did enjoy it. We did have a blast. We, we got to be quite close, he and I, because he was standing on what, as you'll recall, on what looked like a balcony, a small round balcony. Mm -hmm. And of course, it wasn't really a balcony. It was a set. And I was lying on the ground beneath him, right in front of the, the, uh, the balcony. And beneath the shot of the frame of the camera, obviously. And prior to him arriving, we had gone out to Malabar's, that's the biggest uh, costume house in Canada, downtown Toronto. It's still around, actually. And um, 
we rented a bunch of costumes for him because he had a different costume change for every 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 character that he introduced, as you know. And uh, I went out and and with the prop guys, and we got a bunch of just crazy bullshit nonsense props. And I lied on underneath him, and every time we were ready to suit the next piece for him to do, I would pass him up what I thought was an appropriate prop, whether it was a rubber chicken or um, <laughs> a flag or a finger or all kind of loony props that I had acquired at dollar stores, except they didn't have dollar stores, but like that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, so we got to be quite friendly because we quite literally spent all day together from, you know, whatever it was, six in the morning until, and we really cranked that one hard because we had a lot of stuff to shoot with him. And we thought it was going to be two days. We, we, we did think so sincerely when we told him that. So he and I got to be quite friendly and we did dinner and we asked him if there's anything you'd like to do before, while you're in this market, in the GTA, the, the Toronto marketplace, while you're here. And he said, you know, the only thing I would like to do for some of your viewers or listeners and listeners that aren't familiar with it, Toronto was famous for having a huge bargain store on Bloor Street in downtown Toronto called Honest Ed's. Honest Ed's, it yeah. By, yeah, it was owned by a guy named Ed Mervish who ended up owning most of the major live theaters in, in Toronto and, and acquired a company in London as well, London, England as well. Anyway, um, Ed had a son named David Mervish and Davish was into the arts. And Ed had a street right beside his store, which the store started off small and kept growing and growing and growing until it took up an entire city block. And the street right next to it, city allowed him to name Mervish Avenue and his son opened up a gallery on Mervish Avenue and it was famous and um, Vince said the only thing I'd really like to do while I'm in the area is I'd like to go to David Mervish's gallery oh wow and well yeah we said oh wow to ourselves and we said sure to him we'll make arrangements the only problem was um, actually it's funny because we had to make arrangements for him special arrangements and we had to make arrangements for his daughter when I worked with her years later at the Fan Expo. Um, so what we did was we knew we were going to keep him locked up till midnight on the set, shooting, 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 shooting. So how the hell are we going to get him in to see David and the gallery? So we called David and explained who we were and what we wanted to do and who it was that wanted the tour of his place. And he said, are you kidding? <laughs> Vincent Price? I'll meet him anytime, any day you want. <laughs> so we made arrangements. We made arrangements to meet him at 1.30 in the morning. And we finished shooting about 12, took makeup off and everything, jumped in the limo, came into Toronto, got him there right at 1.30. David was waiting at the door with it open. And we went in and he gave him the full tour and talked about all the art and who the artists were and blah, blah, blah. And then got him back in the limo and took him back to the hotel. So his dream came true. That was that was that one. His daughter is another little segue here. I worked with Victoria at Fan Expo, I don't know, but a few years ago, and um, we were sitting together and signing autographs together for the weekend. And um, she said at one point that her best friend lived in Portland, Oregon, I think, and she was going to come in and spend the weekend with, with Victoria. And I said, oh, that's swell, okay. And 
she said, actually, I'm sorry, a relationship started before she told me about her girlfriend. We, we picked her up in the limo and we're going back to the hotel and she said, listen, Mitch, you gotta do me a favor. My dad really didn't tell us much about his career. He told us very little about the movies he was doing, especially the ones that were out of the country or out of California where they lived. And he told us nothing about your TV show. Hmm. And I don't want to go. We were going, we were going to do an interview at CHCH on the morning live show. And yeah. she said, I don't want to look like an idiot. Would you tell me a couple of anecdotes I could tell? So it sounded like I knew what my father was doing. I said, sure, no problem. I had, I had a hundred, I had lots of anecdotes. So um, I told her a few. And when we got to the set, she, you know, built a film. Excuse me. Um, they asked us some questions and she was able to answer a few of them. And um, I took the rest of them, the bulk of them. And that was it. On her way back to Toronto, she said, listen, my girlfriend's coming in and blah, blah, blah. And she would love, love, love to go to the brand new, insane, if you don't mind me throwing in my own opinion, insane new thing they'd added to the CN Tower. Well, they take, I think, 12 people up or nine people up at a time. They hook you up with all kinds of apparatus. And you walk outside. Oh, yeah. Attached with it around the top of the, of the <laughs> CN Tower. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I don't even I don't even I get sick just talking about it. So anyway, that's all her girlfriend wanted to do. And her girlfriend had called to make a reservation. They said, sure, ma'am, we'll be happy to take your reservation. We're booked two months in advance because we just opened. They only take nine people at a time. Yeah. So she told Victoria about it, and Victoria told me about it. And I said, just leave it with me. And I made a call and told them who I was. And that I, I stretched a little bit and said, I've got Victoria, I've got Vincent Price's daughter in town to do a show with me. And she would love to go and do this tour. And they said, are you kidding? Vincent Price's daughter? No, I didn't speak to her answer the phone. I spoke to someone in management. And the arrangement was made in three minutes, no problem. So then her girlfriend went and she did do that walk. And um, that was the end of that, that story. So celebrity has its benefits. <laughs> hey, did you get, ever get any like feedback from Vincent after the show was done? Did he ever watch it or ever see his segments or? No, I don't think so. It's, 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 that's not uncommon in the industry. I mean, I, I didn't take that personally, you know, once you do a gig together and then more often than not, you never see the person again, unless as an example, I did a movie. I, I, you and I talked about the last film and testament of Rosalind Lee. Yeah which was a, uh, a good movie and it was starring Vanessa Redgrave, Academy Award winning Vanessa Redgrave and me and Aaron Poole and Julian Richings. And um, I never even met Vanessa Redgrave, if the truth be known. Mine was a voiceover part and hers was all done voiceover. So we never even got to meet, yeah. let, alone, let alone buddy up and be friends for the rest of our lives. So yeah. no. I, I don't think he probably ever saw the show, and um, that was that. I have another segue for you, by the way, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go nuts. Okay, we talked about Johnny Carson before. Yeah. And uh, the show at one point, when it was open for syndication in the U.S., it played in most of the major markets, like Chicago, New York, California, um, 
uh, Ohio. And um, at one point, I don't know if you guys know much about California, but KTLA is the biggest TV station in, in the state. And yep. their signal back then wasn't like it is now digital, but their signal being right across the state. Everybody in California could get KTLA. And um, they decided to buy it, to buy the show, you know, to run it, to air it. So whoever buys it, usually it's like a VP of acquisitions or director of acquisitions, whatever. He made that judgment call and bought it. And then they sent him a copy of it before, you know, they started, they used to bicycle the tapes back then. You know, you'd send them to KTLA, they would air them, they would send them to Miami, they'd send them to Dutchess, like that. Yeah. So you didn't have to make a million different copies of a videotape. The videotape back then was very, the two inch was quite expensive. Even dubbing time was expensive. So anyway, they bought it. When they got it, they, they had a little meeting in the screening room and they had all the suits, as we say in the entertainment industry, the executives of the station. And it was a big station. So they had all the suits in the screening room. They watched an episode. And then when it was finished, they all go like this and they look at each other and said, what the fuck are we going to do with this TV show? Like, where do you run this? <laughs> they bought it under the auspices of it being a kid's TV show. <laughs> and clearly it wasn't. Like you didn't have to be a five-year-old to enjoy that show. You could enjoy it, especially with some of the slapstick and what we made sure there were sight gags everywhere. Like yeah. the original concept was we were gonna hire the smallest human being we could find. Yeah. We, we, had, we wanted to use a middle person to be the count. And we were gonna find the largest human being we could find to play as assistant Eeyore. So even if the writing wasn't funny <laughs> and the delivery wasn't great, although Billy was an expert, expert, expert at comedy, we figured kids, a five-year-old kid, would look at the screen and see it and it's immediately enough to make you bust out laughing. You know, right. the guy we ended up hiring to play the count originally was, his name was Guy Bing. Now, I don't think he was born with that name, but that was his stage name. And he was 31 <laughs> inches tall. He was the smallest human being I'd ever seen. Now, it didn't work out, and I had to fire him, but that was the plan. So you got to laugh seeing that, seeing Igor over here, who was, was six foot four, 354 pounds. Like, it was a massive guy. Yeah. Anyway, the suits couldn't figure out what to do with Dr. Frydenstein. So they finally made a decision, and they decided to run us. They ran the Groucho Marx show from 11 to 11.30. And they were going to put us on after Groucho Marx, opposite the king of late night television, Johnny Carson. Oh, God. Now, the good news is my son, who's 33, you know, almost 33, he, um, he used to tell me that when he moved to California after he finished college and everything, that California has more colleges and universities than any other state in the union. There's like a, there's a college or a university every 20 feet in California. And therefore, they have more students, college students, than any other state in the union. So what would happen, I guess, with lots of college students, and this is not to say that all college students do this, but I guess some college students have their dinner, do their homework, whatever they're gonna do, party a little bit. And by party a little bit, that means they may have 
rolled a little something. <laughs> and then by the time we came on, which was 11.30 at night, they were just polluted. And Johnny Carson, if you remember his show, he was a real sort of tight-ass conservative kind of guy. When Tiny Tim came on his show as a guest, he would just cringe, like, oh my God, what is this guy? You know, the way he talked and the way he handled himself and the hair down to here and the voice. <laughs> Ours was a real kind of wild and crazy psychedelic, you know, especially like the Wolfman segments. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Like you couldn't ask for a better show to watch when you were a little. Uh, whether you have had. <laughs> Some intoxic intoxicating things prior yeah, to watching the show. They, yes, they yeah. were grooving on hilarious house of Friday night. So more often than not, we had higher ratings than Johnny Carson, which is like in California, <laughs> which is pretty which is pretty incredible. And I never forgot it. As a matter of fact, there's a um, I'll send this to you too. There was a full page ad in the Los Angeles Times, which is the biggest newspaper in Los Angeles, TV guy, and it had an ad. Uh, one column by full page ad showing Groucho Marx on KTLA from 11 to 11.30. Hilarious House of Fridays after the picture of the count from 11.30 until in the U.S. they chopped it down to half hour from 11.30 to 12. So that was um, that was a thrill. That's wild. Um, I can just I just want to interject here. I was one of those um, college kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a friend during college and we would have our friday nights and what and we would we would watch <laughs> the hilarious house and just yeah we, we were just astounded we could not get past griselda and how she was doing that. it was just yep it was made for college kids i'll tell you <laughs> first of all it, it, it's interesting because you're one of those that crew that that were, were watching it when you were that age and then there were kids who were watching it when they were four yeah. I mean, I get lots of people come up to me at these these live shows that I do, the festivals. And by the way, just so nobody tries to get in touch with me or reach me through you or whatever, I don't do birthday parties. I mean, I do large <laughs> events. Like, um, I was the first guest, first celebrity guest they had in London at the Forest City Comic Con. Yeah. I, I do Comic Cons and festivals and, and Fan Expo as an example. Back when I did it, they only had 60 or 70,000 people over the course of the weekend. They grew that up to 120,000 people. Yeah. So like, that's the kind of audience that I would like to deal with. Um, interestingly enough, there was another age group and that was the kids that were going to public school, like just elementary school. Yeah. And the likes of Mike Myers, as an example, when he was growing up, he was awarded, he was invited by the mayor of, of in here in Robbie in Scarborough, Toronto. And when he was given the key to the city as an adult, of course, a successful adult in the entertainment industry. And this was real nice of Mike because you didn't have to do this. He was real menschy, which means a really good guy. And he told the mayor and the assembled audience, when I was a little kid, I would run. Our show was on from four to five at that point on CNCH. And he said, I would run home after school my mom would be waiting for me with a plate of cookies and a glass of milk. And I'd sit and watch Hilarious House of Frightenstein. And I loved it, every single minute of it. And then when he might got older and grew up and became rich and famous and doing his Austin Powers movies, do you remember the, me, the mini me and Maxi me? Yeah. In the movie? 
Yeah, well, he got that by watching our show and watching the mini count and, and the max account because we yes. started off with Guy Big. We ended up having to replace him almost immediately with Billy Van, but we gave him some cameos where he was on the show. So that's where he got the mini me and, and max me <laughs> concept. That makes 100% but sense. Yes. Lots of people his age were, watched it when they were in that age group. Yeah. Um, Jim Carrey credits us. He used to watch it every day with his kid sister and his older brother. And um, Russell Peters, Alice Cooper is a big fan. Um, John Candy was a huge fan, took part in the double entendre there. He used to watch it with his wife all the time. And it, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Well, there was just there was literally nothing like it like this this would have been come as such a big surprise to anybody who's watched it for the first time because there was just it was so original and it was so off the wall and every episode was quirky unto itself like there was like there was no way not to enjoy watching this and want to see more of it because it was just so mesmerizing <laughs> you know and, and and for kids who because we we watched it as little kids as well like i remember being you know five six years old and watching this it sticks yeah. with you it you know you can't it's not the kind of show where you you know you watched it as a kid and then you just it just sort of fades into memory it's still there like it's still you will never forget having watched these episodes because they're just there's nothing <laughs> like okay it. okay my turn for a question now yeah. Did did you when you guys watched the show as kids, is it is there any remote possibility that that might have had a sufficient influence on you to think about getting into the arts, get into the television industry, for example? And I asked that question because it's not unusual for me to hear that. For example, he's a good friend of mine now, but there's a, a guy named Gulish Gary. Yeah. It was Gary Cohen, and Gulish Gary is an artist. He, did he was at one point. I'm sorry. This is Ghoulish Gary's painting, and behind me. Oh my me, goodness! Yeah. Oh, oh that, how it cool is, is that? Yeah, it is artwork on the uh, on the DVD set. Yeah. Well, he's a good he's a good friend of, of mine, yeah. and he uh, he was the art director, as I'm sure you know, at, at Rumorg Magazine for like eight years or something. So he went out on his own, and as recently as I guess it's a couple of years now, so it was pre-COVID. So it was probably not horrible. We have to reference things pre-COVID. But it was probably around three years ago, he released a coffee table book, a terrific book, and he dedicated the first three pages to Hilarious House of Frankenstein. And in it, he said, and he tells anybody who won't listen to him, that he grew up watching it when he was a kid, and it was his entry drug into the world of horror. And he's now right up there with, a, with half a dozen other artists that are the go-to guys if you want artwork for a, a horror-oriented, a DVD package or a Blu-ray package or, or a movie poster or anything to do with horror genre, Lewis Gary is one of the go-to guys to, to, to deal with. And like I said, he, he, um, he dedicated the first three pages of his book to us. I mean, I was, I was thrilled when I saw it. And Mike Myers, when he released his book, My Canada, a few years ago, pre-COVID, he, uh, he was kind enough to give us a mention showed a picture of Billy and, and, and talked about how we had inspired him in his, in his career. So it's, it, it's, it warms the cockles of my heart to hear other people and the, the, the heights that they've, they've grown to, into it and ended up in their career being 
one way or another in some small way going back to when they were kid watching our show yeah well yeah. i mean i think i think a lot of people who watched it it's it was their first there was their entry point into the horror genre and i know loop and i are huge horror movie fans and so we can we credit the show with introducing us to that genre at a really early age and that really molded sort of what what we became and the fact that we still watch horror movies is a direct result of being like it's immersed in this horror you know television show every day for years <laughs> i had a question there's so many like bizarre ideas in the show that i don't know where you guys pulled these from but how did the mosquito i've always was fascinated with the mosquito how did the mosquito come about that idea is so weird and where does one get a mosquito outfit <laughs> <laughs> Um, most of the, almost all of the, the real costumes that we used were from Malabar's because they had, they were, like I said, the biggest costume house in the country. As a matter of fact, I had a thrilling thing happen. Somebody saw, I forget how, they went to Malabar's and they saw the Oracle's costume there. Oh, wow. And they, they, contact, they contacted me to see, could that possibly be? And I said, yeah, it could very easily possibly be because we didn't buy them. We, we rented them. Yeah. So uh, by that time, Malabar's had sent a bunch of their stuff to like a storage place that, that they weren't using or they were overstocked or whatever. So I found out where the storage place was and they were kind enough to make set an appointment because it wasn't open to the public. And I went in and I took some pictures of me wearing the Oracle's costume. Wow. Um, the mosquito. I don't remember if we rented that one or we fabricated it. Yeah. And where did the bit come from? We were desperate, <laughs> and <laughs> there there aren't bigger, in, in my opinion, anyway. I mean, maybe if you have a pet mosquito, maybe that's okay. But in my opinion, there aren't bigger pests in the world yep. <laughs> that I uh, that I hate. I mean, I don't kill anything. If a fly lands in the room, I wait till it gets tired. And I catch them in a glass and I take them out, open the front door and let them out. I throw ants out. I mean, mosquitoes are the only ones that really bother me. But they like me and I end up scratching for three days. Yeah. So um, it could have been just that easy. That the mosquito came into my mind. That's the biggest pain in the ass in the world when it comes <laughs> to insects. So let's make a mosquito. And then obviously the, it was just a diagram of the of the the foot and that was a little bit of chromic back there again yeah and, um, it, was, it was an easy one and it was a cheap one of all the characters that were created for the show and there are a lot of characters on this show did you have a favorite that's tough you know i i, I you know it's like having asking a parent which you, which kid you like the best yeah you know i i, I don't know I, it's and that's a real good equation because we did give birth to that show. There's not much question about that. I'm not so sure which one of us. So, so, then, so instead of your favorite, which, which character do you enjoy watching the most? How about that? Does that make it any easier? <laughs> uh, that's a very sneaky way to, to go yeah. around the corner there. Um, well, no, I'll just tell you that I like a bunch of them. For example, I told you I was in the music industry. I, my brother and I both were in the music industry in the mid-60s. Mid and uh, that was probably the most exciting portion of my life. As a matter of fact, the main band that we both managed, I, I started off managing them. 
And then I was quite young at the time. I was probably 19. And I, I did as much as I could at the time to make them different and to make them add what I could because I'm not a musician. But as an example, at one point, we decided that I would get a tuxedo and rock and roll back then was very informal. The band at that point was wearing chalk stripe suits and bands didn't wear suits back then. And we thought at one point, I think it was my, but I'm not sure. We thought that maybe I would get a tuxedo and I would MC, I would come out and introduce the band. And that would make us the only band, rock band, in the market. And the market went all the way from London. We played London a number of times to the same distance in the opposite direction and north that had their own MC that wore a tuxedo. <laughs> I, I have a history in rock and roll and, and R&B. This band happened to be an R&B band. Um, so when we decided to do the Wolfman segment, I mean, I love the Wolfman. I mean, Billy just aced that one. He did a oh, terrific, yeah. terrific oh. job. And some of us grew up watching Wolfman Jack and he was the most famous DJ, rock and roll DJ in North America, that's for sure. And he was the most unusual because there was no license involved. He, as you probably remember, he would know, he broadcasted from a, a pirate ship three miles off, off the, the coast. So he could do anything he wanted to. He could say anything he wanted to, where everybody else is governed by the CRTC here or the equivalent government governing body in the U.S. So we loved the Wolfman and, and we had a good time with that. Um, Griselda, she was incredible and she was very close to our heart because none of the characters, by the way, we only hired Billy to be the Count, period. And we didn't even think of him first, actually, because we wanted the sight gag. We were looking for a little person yeah. and that, that didn't work out. I mean, the plan there was Guy Big and Igor, Guy didn't drive, but Igor did, uh, and uh, Fishka was the name, Fishka Ray's, and they both lived downtown in Toronto, and we were with them, my brother and I were living in a, we call it a mansion, a great big house in Etobicoke, which is the west side of Toronto, and it had a big house, lots of bedrooms and an indoor pool, and we were renting it at the time, and that's where we did all the pre-production work. So our plan was we had hired Fishka to play New York and we hired Guy Big without even seeing him, just his agent got that. So we'd looked everywhere, we couldn't find somebody that was appropriate. The agent told us who he had and what his name was, he's 31 just all, and we were short, real short on time. Again, pardon the double entendre, it wasn't intended that way. <laughs> um, and we hired him on the telephone. So the plan was they were gonna come out to the house and the three of us, me and, and Bishka and Guy, were going to run through their lines so that I could make sure that they were good, that they were ready, and blah, 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 like that. So um, they made a plan where Bishka was going to pick up Guy, they, they didn't live that far apart, and come out to the house together. And the house was a big house set back dramatically from the road. Um, and Bishka at the time, was driving an old beat up piece of shit Volkswagen Beetle. It was held together with a starving artist. I mean, everybody yeah. in, Canada, everybody in the entertainment industry is a starving artist. 
and um, so it was held together with duct tape. And he picked them up. They, they got to the house. They pulled up into the driveway, which was on a bit of an incline. This is me putting my arm on the incline. If you're listening to the <laughs> podcast, and as he's pulling up the driveway, you could see this horrible gray smoke spewing out of the exhaust pipe. <laughs> and it, it chugged up to the end of the driveway and Fishka opened the door he was driving of course he opened the door and as he's trying to squeeze out from behind the steering wheel you could hear him pop as he got out because it was so tight in that driveway. Oh, <laughs> guy big opened his door and he had to jump down to the driveway <laughs> because his his legs wouldn't stretch that far <laughs> So now the two of them walk together up to the front door and I'm in the living room looking out the window waiting for them. And I'm, I'm looking at them and I say, oh my God, have we got a winner here. Like I'm breaking up inside, watching them get out of the car and walk up to the front door. This is such an incredible sight gag. We've got an automatic hit. All we got to do is get it on the air. Yeah. So they came in. We went down to the pool where we sat beside the pool and we started to run through the lines. I did Pishka first and he was great. He was from South Africa and he had a fairly strong South African accent. And we thought kids like you who are five years old, what the hell do you know? You're going to think it's like a Transylvanian accent. Like he's, oh, yeah. And we did. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. The truth was he was just another South African accent. So anyway, I, I, I said after 10 minutes, fine, you're good. Let's let's just move on here to Guy. And I started to go through some of Guy's lines, some of the Count's lines. And I realized after the same 10 minutes, that, oh my God, we're in trouble here. Like the guy, like I give him a line like Igor get the door. And he had a voice about this big. This is me holding my forefinger and my thumb about a half inch <laughs> apart. He had a tiny little voice to match his tiny little body. And I knew this was going to be an issue because back in those days, most TV sets, when you're on the set shooting, you'd use a boom microphone. So if you have two guys that are about the same size, within a foot of each other, you can use a boom and it'll be outside the frame of the shot. No problem. This was a problem because Igor was six foot four and Guy is down here. You can't use a boom. It never picked him up. And we yeah. didn't have the little kind of microphones you didn't have these days. So I thought maybe we could overcome it somehow. And he read the line, like he'd say, like, you know, get the, had this little tiny voice. So I went over it with him maybe a dozen times because it didn't sound funny. And that was the whole point of the show. Yeah. So, and I finally gave up just trying to listen to him do it. And I said, I gave him some direct like I asked you guys when we were doing some stuff before we started just tell me what you want so I said do it like this um, guy Igor get the door sound a little bit like a vampire yeah because we all grew up watching them shows with with Count Dracula so he tried and he tried and he tried and he just couldn't do it so I said okay we're gonna pack it in for the day thanks guys back in touch with you I went upstairs had a meeting with my brother and I said, not going to work. We got to get rid of him. Like, he, he, he just can't cut it. The guy does not have a funny bone in his body. And uh, he just can't carry the lead character. Right. 
Yeah, that's what Riff said. My brother said, right. <laughs> so now you got to fire him. And I said, me? He said, well, you're the one who's saying it. So I said, no, no, we got to, we got to draw straws or something. And of course, I was the little brother, remember? Yeah. Still am. Yeah. So every time we drew straws, I ended up losing. Yeah. And sure enough, I lost. And he wouldn't even come with me. We had put Guy Big up in a motel right around the corner from the CHH studio in Hamilton. And I was desperate to find somebody to go with me. I didn't want to have to do it alone. So finally, I got I reached out to my best friend, and he acquiesced and said, okay. And uh, we, I picked him up. We went out, we drove out there. I arranged to meet Guy in the bar. There was a bar in the motel. Thank God he was already sitting up on the bar stool, and I didn't have to pick him up and put him on it. And um, I figured I couldn't think of a nice way to do it. So I just shot him the hip and said, listen, Guy, this has nothing whatsoever to do with you. You're a great guy. It's all our fault because what we did is we made a mistake. We, we hired you on the telephone before any auditioning, any talking, nothing. Just based on the fact that you were you fit the bill of what we were looking for. But I understand now that this is going to be a, a real strenuous, horrible job. And I don't think you're going to be able to, I know you're not going to be able to cut it. You're not going to be able to get through nine months of shooting or even if it was six or seven months of shooting mm. those segments. And um, so I, I, I got I to gotta fire you from that job. But, and there was a very strong but, don't worry about it. A, we're going to let you keep the tuxedo we made for you. I know, I know. <laughs> B, B, we're going to pay you for what, what we had originally agreed to pay them. And C, we'll give you another gig. We'll give you a part to play. You're just not going to be the lead character. And he took yeah. it like a man, which was great. And we parted ways. I got back into that car and got under the Queen Elizabeth Way, the highway from Hamilton to Toronto. And I heaved a sigh of relief, man, you could have heard me in London, Ontario. <laughs> like, it's done. I did it. I fired him. Yeah. And it all worked out well. We, we, uh, we thought of a couple of different people. And at the time, my brother was producing a game show called Party Game for CHCH, which was syndicated across Canada as well. And Billy was one of the guests on the show every day. But it was one of those, you know, you don't see the forest for the trees sometimes. It was right in front of us. We already knew he was incredibly talented, very funny guy. He could do everything. He could sing. Anyway, to make a long story shorter, we finally were, were talking about the show my brother and I, and Billy came walking in to the office because something to do with party game. And he said, what are you guys doing? We told him what we're doing. And he said, let me do it, man. Let me play the count. I can do it. And, uh, and we said, Billy, you got a full-time gig here on party game. Like we, when, you know how you do strip game shows like that. You shoot five a day, five yeah. episodes a day. Like that's enough to kill anybody. And you got to recuperate for at least a day after that. And we knew this was going to be a horrendous schedule for Frankenstein. Anyway, he turned around, turned back around like a rich little wood and said, uh, Igor, get the door. Like he morphed instantly into being a town. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what he, And he was begging for the gig. So anyway, we said, fine, you're in, you're the town. And then slowly but surely, he took over the entire show. <laughs> you know, like when we had an idea to do... Um, 
who, which one was it? Wolfman, as an example. Same situation. We were talking about development of other characters, and we talked about having a disc jockey because great way to get to a young audience is music, rock and roll, right? So he said, let me do it, man. Let me play the Wolfman. I said, Billy, you're already doing the count. You're doing party game. Plus, he was flying back and forth from Los Angeles. He couldn't get a work permit to work in, in the U.S. So he was flying back and forth every Wednesday to California, telling the people at Customs he was going fishing, that he liked the fishing in California. And uh, he had a fishing hat on and stuff like that. <laughs> he, was he was taping Alan Bly, a friend of ours, was, was doing the Sunny and Cher show. And he's Aaron's from Toronto, and he knew Billy, and he knew his incredible talent. He flew him in every Wednesday to be a guest on the Sunny and Cherry show. Anyway, Billy did exactly the same shtick he did before. He turned around, and he, five seconds later, he turned back around to us and said, I am the wolf man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Sold. Sold. <laughs> And he didn't ask. He didn't ask for any more money. Nothing. Just he wanted to play the part. That's great. And it went one after another, after another, after another. Funny. One more funny anecdote about that, and then we can move on. We had a secretary at the time uh, in our in our office in the house in the, that we were renting, and her name was Norma. And um, it didn't start off being Norma. It started off being Norman. So she was sort of part of the way through the process and she was real fun. She was always sashaying around and and, um, and um, just a, a barrel of laughs. And we gave her, we had to give her a nickname, Norma Jean, the sex machine. And um, <laughs> Billy came into the office one day to chat with us about something or whatever. And he saw her and whenever something crazy was going on in the office or whatever, she would do one of these, woo, just, I don't know where I don't know where it yeah. came from, but she did it, and Billy saw her, and the dime dropped. You could hear it dropping in his head. <laughs> oh no! Said, I want to play Griselda, and I'm gonna I, and I'm gonna play her exactly like Norma Jean. So whenever Griselda says "woo," you know it came from a transgender wow. assistant of ours in in the office. And um, and then and it just kept and it just kept going and going and going and going and going. But one Clyde patch bed, one character after another after yeah. another after another. And if that wasn't enough, we still had a couple little tiny holes to fill. So he played the singing soldier. Oh just, yes, yeah. He sat Did through when he played the Maharishi. He sat, you know, he would do a little bit, <laughs> two minutes or whatever it was. And then we would dump 500 dead carnations on them. Yes. I mean, the guy, the guy had an insatiable desire to work. Just an incredible work ethic. He loved, loved, loved to work. And he would do anything he had to in that particular job. If it meant getting dumped, 500 carnations being dumped, <laughs> dead carnations being dumped on them. And they stunk by the end of the day, by the way. Um, <laughs> It just kept biting off bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger bites until he owned that show, no question about it. And he did every single part 
well. I mean, he really aced it on all of them, whether it was Bonnie Clyde with his, with his British accent or, yeah. or Pet Vet or you name it, he did it and he did it great. It was, I always, as a kid, I, well, obviously I didn't know that Billy was playing all those characters. First of all, because the makeup person that you used was phenomenal. <laughs> so the prosthetics were amazing, but I never knew that. But I always found it really interesting watching the credits of the show. At one point it says, and Billy Van, Billy Van, Billy Van, Billy Van, Billy Van, Billy Van, <laughs> all the way down the page. I always thought that was really interesting, but I didn't know at the time what that meant. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's how we gave him the credit. Yeah. Credits. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny prosthetic story. You know, we didn't start off with prosthetics. We, we, we tried to, as you guys, I'm sure, know, and the public probably doesn't know, but the way producers work, not in-house producers, when you work for a station or something, but if you're an independent producer like we were, the way it works is you make your deal. You, you, when you pitch your, your, your idea, whatever it is, you tell them what the budget's going to be, and they either approve it or they don't. Or they say, no, I can't give you that. I'll give you this or whatever. Now you've got a budget. And the way it works is whatever you don't spend, you get to keep. That's your end. Like nobody pays you by the hour or anything, right? Yeah. So if you have a half a million dollar budget and you spend 400000 you make $100,000. If you spend four hundred eighty, you make $20,000. So we thought we would try and save wherever we could. And one of the ways was in the look. So what we did was we started off first using uh, masks. Now that was a, probably the most stupid idea we had <laughs> because it's not fair to the actor who has to articulate his face when he talks if he's wearing a mask. Right. So that lasted maybe a day or two and Billy was getting cuts on his face and everything like oh, yeah. it was just a horrible, horrible, stupid mistake. And we made a few of them when we, we were doing this show. So, and it was such a monster, huge undertaking. It's not unreasonable to think you make a couple of mistakes here and there. Yeah. So um, anyway, we, we tried for a couple of days with masks. Didn't work at all, not even at all. And we, of course, we only spent $40 on masks. So it wasn't a big loss. Then we thought we would use a, a makeup person. And we hired a lady, a makeup lady, who came in. And it, it didn't really work out too well. It wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't a great look. And we got a lot of money for that show. We, when we pitched it, I think our deal was we got half a million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, but it isn't when you consider all the amount of production values there. We had to, for that, for that half a million dollars, we supplied all what's called above the line. The station supplied all the below the line. So the station supplied the studios, the cameramen, the, the crew, the, the camera. Um, and I say cameramen guardedly because there were no women camera people at the time. So the, the cameramen, the, 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 ca uh, the, um, the studios, everything below the line. Above the line, we supplied all the sets, uh, the actors, um, the makeup, this, all, all the stuff that I didn't itemize that the station paid for. Right. So when it came to the makeup, we realized A, the math didn't work, B, the, the makeup ladies didn't work. I mean, it just didn't look terrific. 
and didn't cost us anything. It would cost us again another forty dollars or something, you know. Yeah. So we realized right then and there the only way to do it was to get into the big time. And the big time was you mentioned the word Matt, prosthetics. That's the way they do it in the big time. And there was nobody in Canada that we could get that was famous for doing prosthetic pieces. So we found the guy who could do it. And, and um, he was based in uh, New York. Uh, he worked at 30 Rock, where, where NBC studios are. Yeah. And he was in-house there. But he also took some out-of-house work, some independent work. So we decided, you know, the way prosthetics work, you have to make a, a mold of your face. So we decided Billy had to go to New York and somebody had to go with him. And flying was not my, my, my favorite form of transportation. I've flown extensively. I did three cross-country tours with Doug Henning before he became the most famous magician in the world. We did a road tour across Canada. And that meant a lot of flying. And I, I, I've flown a lot, but I don't like, I'm not comfortable. I'm, I'm one of these, you know, white knuckles all the way. Oh, there. yeah. <laughs> so we pulled straws. I lost. I had to go with Billy to New York. I survived. We got uh, we got driven to the airport. We got out of the plane. Got to New York. I thought when we got to New York, there'd be a guy waiting or a person, a driver waiting for us with a big cardboard thing that says Markowitz or Frankenstein or something. We got in the limousine and go downtown to Thirty Rock. But didn't work out that way. There was a guy waiting for us, but he said, "You follow me. You're, you're coming with me." And this is where it got really horrible. We took it to another tarmac, uh, back to the airport. And um, there was a helicopter waiting. And oh. I said, holy <laughs> Like, I'd already, I'd, I'd already, this is not funny, guys. I'd already been up in a helicopter once before. We did a kid's show before Frankenstein that predates you. It's called the Randy Dandy Show. And my brother was Randy Dandy, he produced the show, but he also starred in it. And he had a clown uh, cohort named Silly Willie. And at one point he was between clowns. So, and I was about 16 at the time. So at that point I became Silly Willie. And we had a gig, the Air Force, the Canadian Air Force was having a big gala event in Goodwood, I think it was called Goodwood Air Force Base just outside of Halifax, and they agreed to fly us there to the, to the gig. And we were gonna appear there at, the, at their data. So, um, you know, like Bob Hope used to go to all those military shows. Yeah, so yeah. so yeah. We, we, we got onto the airplane, but it wasn't a normal airplane. Like you would get on to fly from here to New York with seats on both sides and stuff. There were no seats in the goddamn airplane. There were things that come down like this from the side oh, and they were like, uh, stretchers kind of thing so that's what they flew us there in and then we did the gig and when we got when we did the gig my brother neglected to mention this but oh the end of randy dandy show every episode was silly willie the clown would give randy dandy a pie in the mushroomy which means a pie in the face <laughs> well that's okay when you're sitting when you're in the studio but what he didn't tell me here was the way it was written was I was going to go get taken up in the air in a helicopter. The helicopter was then going to come back down to within, you know, six and a half or seven feet of the, um, of where 
Randy Dandy was, and then I was going to reach out and hit him in the face with a pie. <laughs> well, if you've ever been up in the air and then down to seven feet off the ground in a helicopter, it's enough to scare everything you've got inside of you out of you. <laughs> so what, what ended up happening there was we got into the helicopter. They took us up in the air. We're flying out in from the, from the airport to Manhattan. And I got about halfway there. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, I know where, I've been in New York before. I know where 30 Rockefeller Square is. It's in the heart of Manhattan. Where is he going to park this helicopter? And then as we were getting there, well, we almost arrived. I thought, oh, my God. You figure out where he's going to land? On, yeah. on the roof? Fucking A again. <laughs> on the roof. <laughs> So we landed on the roof. I got out of the helicopter, proceeded to change my pants, and then <laughs> we, we headed to 30 Rockefeller Square. They made the mold, the building space. We got back out to the airport, this time in a cab, and um, came back home. And that was another good story for me to relive for the rest of my life. <laughs> About three or four weeks later, the prosthetic pieces arrived. The makeup lady came back. She's the one who put them on. Then you put makeup on top of them so you don't see that they're pieces. Yeah. And the rest is history. The, the makeup, the, the, the end result, Billy looked absolutely incredible as the librarian, which he hated yeah. the most because those are the most prosthetic pieces. All the, the wrinkles in the forehead and the nose and the cheeks and the chin. And da, 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 da. They gave him everything prosthetic except when he needed to go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> So he hated that character the most. Um, but Griselda, he looked absolutely incredible. Bowana Clyde, the cheeks, the chins, the forehead, the everything. So it, it all worked out in the end, and it ended up costing a bunch of money, and there was that much left, less left at the end of the at the end of the game. But uh, it was well worth it. Absolutely. It that it, it made it really did make the show. For, for us as kids, I mean, these were all individuals. They weren't played by the same guy. These were yeah. all different people who yeah. all were so strange looking and all, you know, the denizens of the deep of the castle. And yeah. <laughs> they were so convincing. And you, know, and you know what? People must have thought, some people must have thought. And even to this day, there are people who think that we did that to save money. And we just wanted to use the hell out of this talent that we had, this incredible talent in Billy Vance. It's just not true. It was the farthest thing from our mind. Yeah. We we knew we knew after we agreed that, that Billy, that guy wasn't working out, and that Billy, the tree right in front of us, was fabulous, was great at it. But it was never in our mind that he would do it. He'd find enough pieces and end up being every character on the show except super happy. Igor, Professor Julia Sumner Miller, and um, the mosquito. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, he basically played everybody. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he'd done good. I'll tell you. Again, again, going back to the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, there might be something <laughs> there for number of characters played on one show. I don't know. <laughs> you, you're paying attention to this loop. I, I got it. I'm taking it all in. Uh, let's move ahead now to the future. The last, it's been ex an exciting, like last, like big three, four years of Frightenstein. Um, you've gotten the show on, um, uh, on Crave. You've gotten on Tubi. Like uh, I've been able to put all those shows out there for 
people to see because I to me this is one of these shows that like like SCTV isn't available anywhere which seems weird to me because this is a classic Canadian show that should be available to anybody and now it is uh, but there's been so much going on in the last few years and it, and there's a congratulations in order for you guys tell us about your latest award this is so cool well before I tell you about the latest award I'll tell you about and I'm going to take some credit here because I don't generally take credit personally but in this particular case, I will. We, we did produce the show together, my brother and I. And then we both moved on and did other things. I mean, we, we, we existed somehow for 40 years after that. And my brother owned the rights to the show right from day one. Yeah. And then about um, I don't know how long ago, eight, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was, I had a, 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 what appeared to be an opportunity come up and he hadn't really done much with the show since the beginning. I mean, he, had, he had signed some papers and syndicated it a few times, but that was it, not, no real energy into it, if you will. I'm not, I'm not, that's not a disparaging remark, I'm just, it's, it's just a fact. He went on to produce thousands of hours of television, big time television, like he did tons of specials for HBO, and showcase here in in in, uh, in Canada. He did a red read a bunch of Red Scout specials. He did George Burns specials. He did um, he did Wolfman Jack special with the real Wolfman Jack oh, yeah. <laughs> in Vancouver for the CBC. I mean, he was a he owned um, he was one of the owners of Magnetic North, which was the oh, yeah. biggest, most famous post production facility in, in Toronto and maybe in the country at the time. Yeah. He had a very 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 full um, career until he figured he decided he wanted to retire or semi-retire and he was going to move to California and he spent some little bit of time in Palm Springs and he ran into the mayor there. and I don't know if you know Palm Springs but there's a main street there are other big streets but there's one real main street where all the retailers and everything and there was a theater there called the Plaza Theater and it had been dark or out of business for years and he asked the mayor, like, what's going on here? Like, why is that theater in such a prime location dark? And the mayor said, well, the last people couldn't make go, and blah, blah, blah. For whatever reason, it's been dark for five years or something. So some kind of the, the entrepreneurial spirit inside of my brother's soul came to life and said, you know what? I could do something with that. And to make a long story short, very short, the mayor agreed, he took over the Plaza Theater and created a show called the Palm Springs Follies, where everybody, there's a, there's a huge percentage of seniors living in the round Palm Springs. The desert, nice place to retire, and not much else to do. Like there's not a lot of commerce or work there. Really. So um, the theme for the show was, it was all seniors. You had to be, I think it was 70 years or older to be in the show. And he put together a real big time show with singers and dancers and one big movie star or singing star as the, as the lead, lead person and a new one every year, a new show every year and a new lead person. And he did that, oh, by the way, he emceed the show as well as oh, producing wow. the show. He ran that show for 23 years, never missed a show. In 23 years, so every I think they were dark one day a week. Other than that, every day, busloads of people came in. He set up a huge organization to organize tours coming in and, and things because he had to fill the theater every day. Uh, some days, two shows a day, 
anyway, he was busy and had been busy for a long time. So an opportunity that I saw came, uh, came about and I said, listen, there's an opportunity here. We, you and I could do this together and say, you know what? I'm tired. I don't really want anything to do with writing time anymore. If you want to do it, I'll sign the rights over to you. And the rest of history. He signed the rights over to me. And I got into it in, in I made a, a real strong commitment to it. And I had had a almost 40-year career in the new home industry. I was the director of sales and marketing for a number of major developers in Canada and the US sold thousands and thousands and thousands of houses, which which put me in a position where I could afford to get back into the entertainment industry because like I say, nobody gets rich in Canada in the entertainment industry. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I took over the mantle and did what I could and brought it to the point where you're talking about like this on it's streaming now to almost hundred million people internationally and all kinds of Frankenstein product out there, t-shirts and hoodies and this bobblehead set coming soon is a Blu-ray set in production, um, all kinds of other things that we got into. And I, if you were talking about that announcement that I sent you last night, is that what yes. you're Yeah. Yeah. So I got involved about two or three years ago with a brand new company called Head Spinner Productions. And they were made up of a husband and wife team, Michelle and, and Ken uh, Cooperus. And Michelle had been a, a, an executive producer and ran a production company for about 20 years. She didn't own it, she just ran it. And she took it from about a $2 million company up to a $20 million company over that, that 20 year period, give or take. And her husband was a very successful writer with his writer, writing partner, Sandy, and um, Sandy Jobman Bevins. And they also were, uh, Ken was also a showrunner for producer. And um, she decided to open up her own business. And her and Ken were going to open up their own business, which was Edsman Productions. And they reached out to me and asked about the possibility of us doing a contract together where they would attempt to do, a, to produce a, a reboot of the show, a, a new version of the show an animated version of the show and um, perhaps a documentary about the show. So the yeah. first thing that moved forward was the reboot. They got a deal with the CBC and they got pretty far along actually. The CBC kept funding them and funding them. And then at one point the CBC said, we ran out of money, we, can't, we don't have any more money that we can spend for new programming. So that's just sort of, is held in limbo. And then they started working on, and actually not then, they started a little bit before that, they started working on the animated version. And again, to accelerate the pace on this, they got the show funded and uh, they then got a sale. And the, the, what they decided to do, because the world has changed since 1971 when we did Frightenstein. And you were committed to an hour long show. You know, you could leave if you wanted to, you go to the bathroom, but the show ran 53 minutes of content yeah. and that's not the world today. You know, you can keep a kid's attention for three minutes, four minutes, maybe five minutes. And then they start playing with the cell phone. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds, that's the truth of, of, the, of the reality of today. Yeah. So their idea was they were going to do three minute segments 
and they got funded to do initially to do 10 of them, which probably my guess the budget is probably somewhere around half a million dollars because things have changed a little in the past 50 years. And they got a uh, they got a broadcaster to air. It's now airing on Family Channel Junior across Canada and Family Channel Junior YouTube. So you can watch it like your show. You can watch it either uh, on on air or on on YouTube. Your in your case, it's podcast or YouTube. Yeah. And they basically took their theme from a hilarious house of Frankenstein. They called this show the Happy House of Frankenstein. Their, their idea was to aim it directly at a demographic of kids between the age of three and five, maybe six years old. And they did a terrific job. It, it's, they, they, they did 10 episodes and they're looking forward to shooting another 10 um, spring. That would be their plan. And the plan, I guess, is at one point or another, they could steam those episodes together and create a half hour show right. and then pitch that to whoever, various uh, broadcasters. They also have a deal with a, a distributor who's out there as we speak, pitching it internationally, Europe, uh, America, around the world. What Loop alluding to is, um, <laughs> is the fact that we were nominated for a terrific award. And I'm, I, I don't want to say it myself because I'm, I'm bragging, but we we're nominated for a terrific award. The awards are going to be the award of Ventures, I think, end of April. Yeah. And we're up, evidently, evidently, we're up against a very heavy duty competition. But whether you win or not, just being nominated is enough to make me about three inches taller. And since <laughs> I've lost about two or three inches over the last 50 years, I'll get back up maybe an inch taller than I started off. Um, so we're very proud. And I'll, I'll let you take it from there, Lupin, and just explain exactly what it was. Yeah, the, Cre uh, the Canadian Screen Awards, you got nominated. There was Best Writing, Animation, Original Music Animation, and Best Series. Yeah. Like you just clean yeah. house <laughs> with the nominations. Yeah. The show's really cute. It's yeah. really, it's really yeah. fun. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, really I watched the it. I watched the hide and seek episode. It was really good. Yeah, it's fun to see Gronk uh, in animated form. <laughs> I love Gronk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was he was, a, he was a big part of that, and it was nice that we was all sort of kept in house except for the music. They, they got a, a real professional, obviously, to orchestrate the, the theme music and, and background music. The writing was done by Ken Cooperus, who is Michelle's husband and, and partner in Head Spinner. And his writing partner, who is Sandy Jobin Bevins, who is also a television star, has got a number of things going on on television, a number of shows he's, he's starring in. And uh, one of them is actually starring in with his wife. And they've been a writing team now for, I think, almost 25 years, oh, wow. Sandy and, and Ken. So they got a writing uh, nomination. The music was uh, nominated and we were nominated as executive producers because the four of us are all executive producers on the show. Michelle, Ken, Sandy, and little old me. Well, very, I think uh, very honored. I was so excited last night. I tweeted it right away and I sent an email to everybody I know, including my, my brother in California, who is now really is retired this time. Yeah. in california and he wrote back and said fabulous absolutely fabulous like he was so excited for me and for us 
So it's an honor. Well, it's it's about time that uh, the 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 title of Frankenstein is being re recognized nationally as an award, potentially award-winning yeah. franchise. It's just, I mean, yeah. after fifty years, it's still it's still going stronger than ever. It's 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 remarkable what you're what you've been able to do with this show, this little tiny show that apparently was not going to have any views of any viewers <laughs> because it was in such a small market with a tiny little studio has blown up. It's incredible. And, and with a control room in a bus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, you just, yeah. you, had, you, had nothing, you had nothing going for you. And then all of a sudden you did. And here it is. It's, we've, got, well, we've, we've got a long, long, uh, come a long way. And I'm, I'm, I used to work with David Clayton Thomas, who was the lead singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. I only mention that because the band I managed backed him up for six months. We, we reopened the show, and then he came out and did the second half of the show with us, backing, our band backing him up. And I only mention it because it's not like this came easy. I mean, there's been lots of blood and sweat and tears right from the first day we came up with the concept to me on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like it's not easy being me. And this, all of this didn't come, just people knocking on the door saying, we'd like to do this, we'd like to do that. But it's such an honor actually to see all of the stuff that is happening. Yeah. Like we, merge, every time I turn around, I see somebody out there wearing, they're such wearing t-shirts or hoodies or hats or masks. <laughs> Thank goodness COVID came along. Now they're a Frankenstein mask. Yeah. And, um, um, there, there's, I said, I told you before, there's a, a bobblehead set coming and there's a Blu-ray set in the works that probably, hopefully, will be ready because they're clearing lots of new music so they can have more Wolfman segments out there. Oh, nice. And they'll hopefully be ready for either late summer, early fall of 2022. I am so getting that, like a long sure. way away. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a long way away, but people, when they buy a Blu-ray set, they want really, really, really top quality yes and it, you, you can get away with a lot of things with dvds and the cassettes and the vcrs and stuff blu-ray you got to put a whole lot of work and time and energy and money into that and that's what they're working on now in california so um i mean we've, lot, lots of we've waited 50 years to get a beautiful home home uh video version of the show i think we can wait another couple months <laughs> yeah I, wow. I'm, I'm good <laughs> thank you thank you yeah. yeah well this is this has been remarkable like yeah. this is you know thank you so much for for giving us your time and sharing your stories like this is you literally i mean this is our childhood that we've been talking about here and to hear the the inside scoop directly from you is just you know, as much as we loved the show before, it just makes the show that much more exciting to watch now. Yeah. So, you know. My, my, my pleasure, guys. If it's okay with you, I'd like to end the show yeah. the way we started. And I stole this idea from Jackie Mason. My, my wife and I were going to see Jackie Mason live. My son was didn't want to come. He had not, wanted nothing to do with live shows, especially comedy. <laughs> and I twisted his arm and he finally acquiesced. Well, we, we haven't done anything. You're coming to the show with us. He didn't stop laughing at the whole show. And then the way Jackie Mason ends his show, his live show, is he said, I'm tired of all the time, you know, the audience walks, you know, the, the audience leaves. The, 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 sorry, the, the host or the comedian or whatever leaves first. And then the audience drifts out. I do it differently. I get up, 
like this. I'm walking away. You guys can leave whenever you want. See you later. Thanks for coming. Good night, Mitch. <laughs> Where did he go? He's gone. <laughs> good, good night, Canada. Good night, Loop and Matt. <laughs> good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's awesome. Good night. <laughs> there he goes. He's off, just gone, just like that. Off, <laughs> off into the abyss. <laughs> oh, the lights went out. <laughs> These castle lights are growing dim. <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now. That's awesome. That is so all awesome. I can tell you. All I can tell you is that was that was one of the greatest like two hours of my life. Yeah. <laughs> what an exit too! Just like shuts the lights off. It's like I don't know what's happening. The consummate performer. <laughs> he is. He's a performer through and through. Yeah. Uh, thanks everybody for watching this. This it was great to talk to him. I've never like to be able to kind of dig into some of the stuff. The questions I've always had about the show was so yeah. cool. It's just yeah. I mean, literally growing up with this show, like literally growing up with this show, and to, now fifty years later, hearing the inside story just is mind blowing to me. I just, and I, I could have asked him a ton more things too, but I'd want to waste all his time. <laughs> I could have literally just like berated him with more questions. But yeah, we, we could have literally had like a seventeen day podcast easily. <laughs> that was so <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I don't know. So thank you so much for watching. Um, if you want to follow us uh, and continue to listen to the shows and watch the shows on YouTube, um, put up the socials right now for you. If you have any questions or anything you want to see on the show, we'd love to uh, hear from you. And I'm also going to put up Mitch's information as well. If you want to follow him, because he's hilarious on Twitter and on social. Like I love seeing what he's doing. And yeah. he's, a, he's a great dresser too. I, got, I didn't mention that in the interview, but he's yeah. always on point. He is the most stylish human being on the planet. Quite oh, he's awesome. He's so cool. <laughs> I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> I do. I totally do. So thank you so much for watching. And thank you, Mitch, for being part of the show. We loved it. It was, I was just, just as a, as a person that just ate up that show as a kid, it was awesome to be able to talk to him this time. Thank Absolutely. you so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Loop and Larry, Guardians of Geek. Oh, bye-bye. Produced by Matthew C. Loop and Lawrence Simner. A Loop and Larry production. Bueller. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. Bueller. Bad news. Fog is getting thicker. And Leon's getting larger. Inconceivable. Brian's right. It's an elf. Wax on. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Oh, Captain. My Captain. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Wax off.